this is what I tell my songwriting students. I'll, I'll give you I'll give me a little talk I give to them, which is um, songs are not precious. And if you come at songwriting from that perspective, you're going to be fine. Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Erin McKeon about the ups and downs in her career and about writing a musical for the first time. You know, not to be uh, t- too like dramatic about it, but it really saved me. We'll hear from Debbie in a moment, but first, a song we recorded in the studio called You Were Right About Everything from Aaron McKeon's 2005 album, We Will Become Like Birds. You were never broken by ordinary things You kept holding out for the big mistake I was fragile, too scared and delicate You kept trying, I am the one that quit Worn out by the baggage that we bring You were right about everything There were times your age began to show You were never more dangerous to know You passed me running You caught me standing still You would do it all Again and all for the thrill Now I was raised You get out before you sink You were brave about everything doesn't like labels or categories, 
but I think it's safe to say that she's a musician, a playwright, and an activist. She tours with the likes of Annie DeFranco, Josh Ritter, and the Indigo Girls. She's a former fellow at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, where she worked to connect the worlds of policy, art, and technology. She's deeply involved in social justice and immigration issues. Her latest project is a musical she wrote titled Miss You Like Hell, and it's playing at the Public Theater in New York City. She's here today to talk about the making of the show and her incredible body of work. Erin McKeown, welcome to Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Erin, is it true that your dream gig would be to perform with Judy Garland? (laughs) Um, At one point, that was my dream gig. Maybe 15 years ago, more, more. I was walking by a um, bookstore in West Hollywood, and there was a new biography of Judy Garland, and it was up in the window, and something just told me to grab it, and I... I never knew anything about her. I didn't really even like The Wizard of Oz. So it's like 2002, 2001, and I find out who Judy Garland is and became fascinated. And there's something about her, the way she sings and her presence with the audience that um, is really inspiring to me, and I just sort of want to be next to it. So it would be fun if I was, like, her music director. It's probably probably not that fun because she probably was hard on her music directors. But, like, you know, like, I'd love to be a guest singer in one of her um, big shows. You described her voice as strange with an odd range. And I'm wondering what you meant by odd range. What does an odd range mean from one singer to another? Well... The thing I like about Judy Garland is that what was her wheelhouse, you know, the best parts of her range where she had the most power and control and interesting texture is the same for mine. I sing in a lower register, and especially when I was younger, the the older I've gotten, the, the more range I, I have. But especially when I was younger, there was sort of my wheelhouse was tinier. So it's like I didn't need any translation to sing her songs. And I also feel like kind of that way emotionally about her songs. I don't have to imagine that they're about something different than they're about. I'm trying to think of any other singers that I could think of um, like that. I mean, another touchstone for me is Edith Piaf. Mm. And similarly, feel like I don't need much translation between her songs and how I would sing them. You've said that the narrative structure that influences you most is biography the order of a life, making sense of a life lived. And you've said, I will always be interested in childhoods, family, and growing older. And over the years that I've been doing this podcast, that's also become the structure of Mm -hmm. the way I like to Mm -hmm. get to know my guests. And so I'm so thrilled to be able to ask you about how you became you. We'll see what perspective I have today on that. (laughs) Well, you grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Mm -hmm. and started taking piano lessons around three or four because your parents thought it would make you a more well-rounded child. Uh Um, But you weren't a piano virtuoso. Did you enjoy playing music? at that early age? I didn't think about it as something that you would find pleasure in, actually. Um, Yeah, some of my earliest memories are, um, like, storefront, like, piano stores. And I remember being three or four and being in these sort of group lessons at the Yamaha storefront. And it's one of my earliest music memories, but I I don't ever remember feeling uh, like I was expressing myself or like I was fulfilled. I would think at that time um, what gave me the most joy was um, being outside, 
I love to be outside. Um, Fredericksburg is a relatively it's sort of rural. Um, it's halfway between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, and that tells you everything you need to know about it. But anyway, I had a childhood that was spent outside, and that's where I would have told you that I got pleasure or joy. From what I understand, when you were young, you wanted to be a scientist. Yeah, I mean, that grew from my love of being outside. Um, I was raised like an upper-middle-class kid, but I was raised by parents who had grown up working class. So my grandparents on one side grew up in Italy and then emigrated here, and my grandparents on the other side were... Um, my father's a third-generation Irish-American, so so we are Catholic. <laughs> but, you know, I grew up upper middle class with sort of an awkwardness around that because my parents had grown up working class, so they were aspirational and moving up in, in class. And, um, you know, it's that question of what do you do with middle-class kids in the summertime? So I, you know, I definitely did a lot of, like, a swim team and pool, but then it was like camp. What camp? are you going to? And um, I went to a science camp um, called Nature Camp. (laughs) Not a very original name, but a very special place in the Shenandoah Valley. And um, I went there for the next eight summers and really found myself there. Um, And that was a science camp, but also had like kickball and camper talent night and counselor talent night and lots of hikes. And I loved it. I had my favorite friends there. I felt like I was mostly myself there. And um, I thought I'd be a scientist because of that, um, but it is also ironically where I learned to play music. That's where you picked up your first guitar. I yeah. believe you were 12. You know, it was one of those things where you, you um, after dinner, there was going to be like educational evening programs. So sometimes it would be um, a, a local forest ranger would bring in like an owl, <laughs> you know, and you'd get to look at the owl. Or someone would come in and give a, a lecture on mushrooms or you would watch. Um, we used to watch these great like 70s documentaries about nature in our evening program. But right before evening program started, there was 15 minutes of singing. And I I mean, obviously knew people played guitar, but I'd never really been near someone who played a guitar. And I had never seen the way that playing music informally like that or the thing that a guitar does that's a little bit different than a piano. And um, when I went home from camp after that first summer, I just wanted to keep doing that, you know. And um, so I got a guitar for that reason to kind of keep singing these songs. But it still never occurred to me to be a musician. The first song you ever wrote was titled My River. How do you know that? <laughs> and where did I where have I said that before? Oh, I don't know. It's <laughs> amazing. And it's true. No, your your research is correct. And from what I understand, you wrote it for your camp counselors. Um, many of them at the time were heading up to Quebec for a protest around a new <laughs> dam that was being proposed. Yeah, exactly. And you wanted them yeah. to have want, something to you sing. Want to play it? Yes, yes. If I can like Now this is written from the perspective of the river. Oh. Yeah, that's true. You want me to be your river. You want me to follow your tide. You run to my river. You can't swim. I'm too deep and wide. Anyway, it goes like that. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. You, you plug me with your goddams. You put condos on my shore. Like, I mean, it went on. And and uh, I need to figure out, I need to try to remember the rest of it. I can remember the first two verses of it. But uh, it's very much like the songs that I continue to write. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's never happened anywhere before. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> 
You've said that idols and heroes are important teachers and that growing up, the music you loved most was the music that helped you feel more than you were capable of feeling on your own. And I loved that. You felt that music was more vulnerable and angrier than you were, music that made you imagine yourself on stage when, as you put it, in real life, that seemed impossible. Why did it seem impossible? Part of that comes from class, like a aspirational middle-classness of my family of um, trying to uh, contain and sort of fit into a, a more rigid idea of like family and emotions, I think. And, and also just, I yeah, I don't think I had a lot of models for how to feel any of those things, like beyond the beyond the boundaries of what felt acceptable. And I think that's also true for a lot of people. Honestly, like I, I think that's what that's what music and art does for a lot of people is is help them um, understand things and feel things that they uh, maybe don't have practice with. It's certainly to me less vulnerable to listen to an angry song than it is to get angry. Mm. And um, I certainly didn't understand at the time that that's what was happening. Uh, but I, looking back, I think that was my draw to music. Now, you said that you've only had one other job aside from being a musician. In high school, you worked for a painter and sold art supplies and framed pictures in her shop. Did you work for a well-known painter? Uh, No, not a well-known painter at all, but a tremendous painter, a woman named Paula Rose, who um, is is well-known in Virginia art circles. Um, And her paintings are, um, they're very feminist but um, no, I dated her son, and um, and that's how I met. That's how I met her. And then you know she needed like you know shop girls, and so I think I was in maybe tenth grade, and I started working for her. And um, she had a shop that was um, art supplies in the front, frame store in the middle, and then she and her mother lived in the back. And um, so on Saturdays, you know, for um, the last three years of high school, I would go and work there all day. But really, I was just like cooking inside like a matriarchal collective. Again, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's what was happening for me as I was really getting a lot of uh, mother love and female friendship and the lesson in how to be an artist. Again, I didn't think that's what I was doing at the time. I wasn't trying to figure that out. I still thought I'm going to go to college and be a scientist. I mean, I played music. By the time I was in high school, I was playing music, and I did like it, and I was writing songs. But I I wasn't preparing for a career in music. Um, Though looking back on it, I grew up with access to a, a community of people who were artists, even though I didn't have that model in my family. Now, I understand that you were in an all-boy punk band when you were 16. Yeah. But if you were in it, it, how could it have been an all-boy punk oh, band? <laughs> well, sometimes, I mean, I, I don't know. I was probably already early experimenting with my gender. Um, yeah, it was called Wheeze Cake. It was my boyfriend's band. And um, my boyfriends in high school were um, fascinating, interesting musicians, <laughs> basically, um, which was probably more the attraction than that they were boys. But, um, yeah, so anyway, I turned out to be gay, but that's fine. Um yeah, so I was um, I was in that band, and it was really should have been a power trio. Should have been in that tradition of like um, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Cream and those sort of electric guitar power trios. And I was very much the fourth wheel, sort of playing rhythm guitar in music that doesn't need that. You can't even hear me in the Weeds Cake songs. I mean, that's what that was the experience of the band was like. You can't even hear me. Evidence of living. <laughs> yeah, right. 
1995, you were a semifinalist in the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest. <laughs> that on. used to be that used to be the first line of my bio, and because you know how you put the first line of your bio really is like the best thing you've done lately. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. like that was my very first bios I was ever writing. I remember that being like the very first line of it. <laughs> well, you were a semifinalist, and and it was yeah. by the Songwriters Association. I was seventeen. Of I was I was still in high school. I was seventeen. So did, did this give you some sort of validation of your talent and totally. a sign that? this is what you should be doing? It wasn't. I didn't take it as a sign of this is what I should be doing. But it definitely gave me validation. I mean, I would say like 99.9% of why I share my music with the world is validation. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I, could, I could just keep it to myself, really. But there's some impulse to show it to people um, in that validation just to be like, hey, I'm here. Do you hear me? And so something like that was a, a, one of the first echoes back that said, like, we hear you. Yeah. You know, we hear you. And it gave me it gave me some confidence. And um, at that time, I wouldn't really play music in front of people. But it was definitely like maybe maybe you could get up in front of your school and play a song of yours. You ended up going to Brown University where you studied ornithology. For a very short amount of time. <laughs> but eventually moved to study ethnomusicology. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've spent a fair amount of time in your life explaining what ethnomusicology no problem. is. I got, a good, I got a good one for it. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. Thank okay. you. So ethnomusicology is, um, is really like the sociology of music and a little bit of the anthropology of music. So it's why people make music, how people make music, how they use it, where it comes from. And... Um, a lot of ethnomusicology, certainly most people, when they hear about it, it's to describe the sort of study of like a foreign music. So you would you would be a white person from America and you would go to a black community in Africa and you would study them. And that's sort of like a traditional idea or you'd be somewhere where you are not, where you are foreign and you're studying. Um, and I was not that interested in that version of ethnomusicology. I was sort of interested in in what they call the participant observer um, of like like applying these sociological thoughts about music to the music that I was making with the people I was making it. While you were at Brown, you were also an artist in residence at the community arts organization AS220. And you also released your first album, Monday Morning Cold, which some have said is a folk record, although mm-hmm. there's some question about how it would be categorized. Um, while you were still a student, this was in 1999, yeah, that was a turning point for me. I mean, once I got to college and my time was my own, and again, I, you know, I didn't have any anyone telling me you have to take this kind of class, you have to take that kind of class. It was like my, it was like my, uh, all the strictures were off, all the containing was done, and um, and that's that's just what bloomed when I took away all of those uh, expectations. What made you decide to record an album? Well. This is so classic, like, late 90s liberal arts college. But the women's magazine was called The Spread. And nice name. <laughs> Good name. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it had an audio component. And I don't—I wasn't responsible for initiating the audio component. I think the women that had done it a few years previous to that um, had initiated that. But um, I remember my freshman year, I started working on it, and it was going to be like a box. And inside the box were all these poems on different pieces of paper, and there'd be a CD. And— um, we wanted to get women around campus who were writing things to be on the CD for the spread. And um, I volunteered to help with that. And I got a, um, a recorder from the media lab, you know, like a hard disk recorder and a stereo mic and started going around recording just people that I knew around campus. And so I recorded myself as well. And um, that was my first recording in the um 
there was a house that I lived in um, that had a really great sounding bathroom, like a really great sounding bathroom. So I kept like borrowing the recorder from the media lab and setting up in the bathroom of, Very of my junkies. house. <laughs> yeah, setting up in the bathroom of my house and just recording myself for hours. And um, in the CD version of that album, uh, there's a picture of me on the toilet. <laughs> like in that bathroom, <laughs> you know, and then a picture of like my amp. I was put my amp in the bathtub in a certain way and it would sound really good. So the pic- picture of the amp in the bathtub. Now, you said that you play just about any instrument you can think of. But does playing instruments come naturally to you? How do you how do you just pick up an instrument and know how to play it? Well, something changed for me. It, I can trace it to a, a certain moment. Again, my freshman year of college, um, an artist named Martin Sexton, an, an acoustic artist from Boston, came down to Providence and played at a, a church coffee house. And at that show, he like he whistled and he played piano. And he played his guitar like a bass, and he he just his musicality like spilled over the tool that was in his hand. It didn't matter what was in his hand. He could be musical on it. And I was so inspired by that, so truly inspired that I wanted that freedom. And I remember thinking that night, like, I want to be able to to pick up anything and be musical on it. Uh, I can't play the trumpet. And that's pretty much it. Um, But I think that spirit of, like, I just want to be able to be expressive and musical no matter what's on my hand has driven me. And And I've worked at it. You know, I made that decision when I was 19 years old. I'm like 40 plus now and I've had a lot of years to fuck around with instruments and try things out. You regard the act of singing though as the most intimate and vulnerable a thing a musician can do. Singing is still a mystery to me and for me it's it is tied to childhood, it is tied to the very essence of wanting to be heard and not feeling like you're being heard and having to use that voice and it, it's it just is completely metaphorical and physical at the same time. And when I talk about using my voice, I really mean like both my agency as a person and the like technical muscle in my mouth. (laughs) You know, and when you take a voice lesson, I don't know if you've ever done that before. I have actually. Yeah, it's really, um, I find that the, that process with my voice moves glacially compared to how I'm able to improve or explore on other instruments. And I just think that it's, um, for me, it's completely tied up to my perspective on um, childhood and being seen, and it's fundamental. How do you write a song? You hope. <laughs> That's what I think. Um, this is what I tell my songwriting students. I'll, I'll give you I'll give me a little talk I give to them, which is um, songs are not precious. And if you come at songwriting from that perspective, you're going to be fine. Like, they're not precious. You, you have written songs before. You will write songs in the future. And you will write many of them. In fact, hopefully you will write so many of them that you can't count. That, and you won't remember which ones are good. And you won't remember which one is your favorite. Um, there will be ones that connect more with different people in different ways. But you as the writer, the less precious you are about your songs, the better it is. Right? So that's my fundamental thing I think about. And then the other thing I say is that it's like fishing. And I didn't come up with this metaphor. I believe I heard it from my friend Mary Gaucher, who is a um, wonderful singer-songwriter that I met in Boston, who now lives in Nashville and sort of in in that world. Um, but I remember her saying one time that it's like fishing, you know. And um, so, so think about how, do you, how you fish. You, you, you have to choose the right spot. You have to have the right tools. You have to be patient. But some days you're not going to catch a fish, even though you're in the right place at the right time. And then when you do catch one, you have to take care of it. 
and you have to nurture it and you have to bring it out of the water in the right way. And that's how you do it. Uh, and some, I mean, you know, maybe underneath your question is that question of like, do the words come first? Do the music come first? It was really more about how does the idea come into you? There's a hundred different ways. I've had songs that come to me in dreams. I heard them and I saw them and I just had to wake up and write them down. And I mean, that's crazy and that's a gift and I'm always thankful for it. But not many come like that. And there's so- songs that come from conversations. Uh, I would say songs that that I wrote for the musical um, came from conversations with my collaborator, very specific conversations like, like, wouldn't it be fun if we had this kind of song? And, and at the beginning, we need to think about this. And at the end, we need to think about this. And so they're like a crossword puzzle or something like that. You fill in the blanks. Um, then you have songs that, that just come because you, you feel like you can't help but write them. I mean, I've literally been standing in my kitchen waiting for a, a cup of tea to go and I'm just noodling on the guitar and then I just hear something and I'm like okay you know what I mean and again it's like fishing you just have to know you have to recognize when the little the little spark has started another thing I like to talk about with my students is something called a container right the thing that makes the song a song and the container could be um, a particular chord progression that all of a sudden like is more than the sum of its parts you know what I mean? Or a particular, like, combination of a word and a melody that, like, feels repeatable. For me, that container is often a combination of a rhythm, a melody, and a set of words. That's it. You know, no other instruments, but, like, some drum beat, a melody, and a set of words. Once I have that, then I get to repeat it and fill it. And that's what I mean by the container. Yeah, and I guess, I, yeah, I, let's go back to the beginning, though, and say the main thing, a song, a song just happens because you're in the right place and you've prepared. After your first two albums, as you started to make more, by 2003, your style took on a really wide array of sounds, and you play the accordion, the piano, an organ, electric guitars, drums, samples, a keyboard, and anything else you found lying around the studio, from what I remember reading. Um, And music critic Andrew Muller wrote this about the album. There aren't enough songwriters to whom it would occur to write a song in the form of a letter from Igor Stravinsky holed up in Hollywood in the 1940s while he waited in vain for Dylan Thomas to recover from tuberculosis so the pair could write an opera together. (laughs) What inspired that song? You know what was funny is is, um, uh, that record Grand was a turning point in a way. It was the first record I made with a big label and we got a big budget and we went to like a studio where you live and... I generally have it's been my experience when I've made records that I write something while the record is being made. It just happens. You're just spending all day with your music and you're spending all day thinking about sounds and and just immersed in it and something usually happens and it usually is the song that for me ties together the whole project. It's sort of like the capstone of the arch. And that that was that case for Grand. Um, I was staying at this farmhouse studio, and I was up late one night, not able to sleep. And there was a, a box set of Stravinsky recordings, which I'm not even that familiar with. Like, I, I appreciate classical music, but I'm not a close listener of it. And um, for whatever reason, I just started reading the liner notes of that box set, and it told the story of Stravinsky and Vera. And um, I don't know, I just thought it was, I just thought that was whack, <laughs> to be honest. Like, what a, weird, what a weird story, you know? Like, Stravinsky and Hollywood, like, tuberculosis, like, what? Next door to Schoenberg and they barbecued? Like, <laughs> they like, were humans, they right? were people. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I remember writing that song that night in the studio. And, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite songs to play. 
In almost every bio or article about you, it's noted how you have a high prolific disregard of stylistic boundaries. Uh Um, And the Rumpus wrote that every new song you release is a total surprise, (laughs) which is something I think you love. Yeah, I mean, it's well, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with that. I think as I've grown older uh, and have stopped giving as many fucks, like I I appreciate that about myself, but I certainly uh, I would have a different career if I had been able to write the same song over and over again, and I would have a different career if I had been able to write a song that was more easily categorizable. It created a marketing problem for my record label, and it created a problem for, like, trying to introduce me as an artist to the world, you know? And and I certainly, like, really thought hard about that and and, um, definitely spent some years, like, trying, you know, to, like, fit more into a box that could be more marketable or at least more easily described and I just couldn't do it and it didn't it didn't get me to the extent that I was able to do it, it didn't get me anything I wanted so I just at some point especially with the way the music industry has um, narrowed and collapsed it's not like there's money for me to be made there anyway and I think just getting older I just was like fuck it <laughs> you know and and I think I think it's actually um, my uh, innate passion direction essence whatever it is that comes out in that song by song thought instead of only write one song kind of song is what I think has served me in greatest stead in terms of being able to do my latest project uh, the musical I'd like to read a quote from you from 2008 in an interview in which you mused about how strange it felt that the reporter quoted something back to you three weeks after you originally said it. So I apologize for now quoting this back to you 10 years later. (laughs) So you said, I've always thought that you should categorize music on how it makes you feel. If you imagine you could walk into a record store and see a section called Breakup or Sunny Day or Car Ride or Your Mom Just Died. You know what I mean? That's brilliant. Think of all the sections you could have. And I completely agree with you on this one. Have you seen music categorized this way at all? I think you can on Spotify, right? Can't you do like specific That's ideas? a good question. Well, I think I think those Spotify playlists are maybe an attempt at that. I mean, that really came out of my thinking of what we were talking about. We talked about ethnomusicology. Like, how do you use music? And that, to me, is the fundamental question of like, it's not do you like it? It's not what does it sound like? It's not how did you buy it? It's how do you use it? And so that's where that was coming from for me. And I still I still believe that. So it's mood related. Yeah. And it's just useful. I mean, I, I, uh, I there's been a few songs over the years for me that people have uh, responded to very strongly and have told me about because there's two parts of that. I mean, people obviously can, can hear things and have an experience, but then I don't I don't always know that they don't always tell me. Uh, but when people do tell me, you know, it tends to be about this song was useful to me because of this. And that, to me, makes the most the most sense. Your song gave me courage when I didn't have courage or, um, you know, helped me feel something that I couldn't feel or it allowed me to hand that song to someone to say something I couldn't say, which is useful to me. Your 2007 album, Sing You Sinners, was described as 13 songs of mischief and spunk collected from the forgotten corners of Tin Pan Alley and Broadway, written by the likes of Johnny Mercer, Cole Porter, and Fats Waller. It was your singular and sly take on the not-so-standard entries in the Great American Songbook. How and why did you choose the songs to include on this album, and what made you decide to do that album in the first place? 
Well, um, some of it was practical because I hadn't written enough songs for a new album. I mean, just to be straight up honest, like when I see an artist make a standards record, I immediately go to the reason why I made a standards record, which was just like, oh, shit, you have a record due and you haven't written enough. Um <laughs> But that can be a uh, that can be a catalyst for a really interesting project. You know, I had always sung uh, swing music for fun. I'm interested in this idea of like what is a standard, um, and that also ties into like the songs that are in the camp songbook. Like, why are those songs in there, and why are they the songs that we keep singing? And the songs in the camp songbook are standards in um, the same way that "Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered" is a standard. And by that, I mean songs that get used in lots of different contexts and can be played easily by lots of different people in different ways and that have a structure that allows them to kind of be pulled apart or put back together again and still maintain some sort of, like, integrity about it. Um, I'm not a real show-off singer, and so I picked things that weren't associated with some, like, iconic, like, performance of them that somehow would color how people would listen to them. Was the reason for your 2011 record, Fuck That, the anti-holiday album, also because you needed to write another <laughs> album? Of, of uh, No, that just came because I hate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to read your description of this oh, album. Yeah, sure. yeah. It's called Fuck That, anti-holiday album. It's the world's First, anti-capitalist, pro-queer, suspicious of Christmas as patriotism, sex-positive, not safe for work, multi-ethnic, radical leftist, anti-holiday record. There is nothing redeeming about Christmas in any of these ten songs. Please note this album contains adult language and themes completely inappropriate for children, on purpose. So, <laughs> tell me tell me about what inspired you to do that. Well, this is an example of um, having felt about something a long time with no desire to share about it and then having all of a sudden a desire to share about it. So, like, I did not have, um, uh, like, warm, fuzzy memories of Christmas growing up. And um, I think that people who feel that way will will let you know it's always a lot worse because it seems like everyone else is having, like, this amazing time at that time of year. And, and for your own reasons, it's just painful or helps you see your family in ways that are just painful. And I just sort of, like, I don't know. I was just sad about that privately for a while and felt like I, I wasn't, this wasn't something I was allowed to talk about or I was allowed to share. I live in Western Massachusetts now and a theater company in Western Massachusetts, some friends of mine were doing a, um, a play that was about murdering Santa Claus, you know, a very fun, like definitely. Upbeat. The, uh, yeah, it actually was. It was really sweet. It was like, you know, everything was fine in the end, but it was, it was, um, gently irreverent. Um, and they wanted it to have a first act and a second act. And in the in-between, they asked me if I would play, um, you know, maybe some, like, dark holiday tunes. And um, I think I wrote three songs for that and just felt like something broke open inside me when I wrote them. And they got such a great response that I very quickly, like, made the rest of the record. It's one of my favorite records. And it's also, like, the one that lost me the most fans. I'll be totally honest. Like, Why? that was another turning point what in happened? my career. Why did people are not into you fucking with Christmas. It's very tender for people. And I understand that was tender for me, but it's just tender in a different way. But many people were like, I love your music, but I'm going to sit this one out. And they didn't come back. You know, Facebook tells me that, and um, I would do tours for—I would do these anti-holiday Christmas tours, and, like, you know, like 12 people would come, whereas the last time I played in that town, they'd be, like, 200 people. And people were just, like, 
there were people that were into it, were really into it, but a great many people who dug my music were like, no, not for me. You know, at this point, again, zero fucks given. Well, you seem to have, you've said that you don't care nearly as much as you used to. No, I really don't. How did you get to that place? How did you get to that zero fucks given Well, the bottom had to fall out. You know, the bottom really had to fall out, which is a combination of a bunch of things. Uh, The music business, different than it used to be. So um, the economics changed for people. I am a you know, non-binary looking like female-ish person who uh, was never interested in being photographed or marketed in any sort of way that was like, make men want to look at you. And I got older, you know, this was happening in my like late 30s. And then um, my fan base had children. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I would start to notice I would come to a town and less and less people would come in. And the next day I get Facebook messages that were like, God, we saw you were in town. We would have loved to get there, but, like, we just had a baby. Or someone would come up at the merch table and they'd buy two or three CDs and they'd say, this is from my friend. She, she loves you. She couldn't be here tonight. She just had a baby. So there's this way that, that um, many people in their 30s into their 50s uh, disappear from culture because they're raising families. And I really try to come at that without judgment just to just say that's the way it is. But anyway, all of that added up to, like, the bottom falling out for me um, in terms of having, like, a more viable career. It didn't stop me from wanting to make music, didn't stop me from making music, but it sort of kicked the chair out from under my financial situation. So I started teaching more. Um, I started doing more record producing and stuff like that that wasn't dependent on people coming to shows. And then, um, you know, in 2011, Kiara Hudes wrote me an email through my website, and she said, do you want to make a musical? You know, not to be... uh, too like dramatic about it but it really saved me it really saved me i would say that 2011 2012 was sort of like the bottom of this trough of all these things adding up and uh yeah and i just got to this point again where like all the things i did to try to get what i wanted didn't work so zero fucks so Kiara wrote you through your website? Yeah, there's like a, there's still there. There's <laughs> That's like, how I reached yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. You The same email address that you wrote me at. Kiara Hudes, for folks who don't know, is a, a well-known playwright. And at the time that I met her, she had uh, just won a Tony for writing the book of In the Heights. With Lin-Manuel with Lin- Miranda. Mm-hmm. Wonderful musical. And she had um, been a Pulitzer finalist for some of her other plays. And so she had this play that she thought should be musical, and she went around asking her friends, like, what's a good female composer? I don't even think she said composer. I think she said singer-songwriter. You know, like someone who wasn't in the theater world, who whose music you like. And um, a friend of hers from growing up had gone to Brown at the same time as me. I didn't know her, but she, you know, she knew my music. And um, she put me on a list of 10 artists that she liked. And Kiara is, is thorough. And she went down that list and she listened to everybody. And she heard a record of mine from 2009 called Hundreds of Lions. And um, she thought that record sounded like what the musical should sound like. So she just wrote me this email. And she said, um, you know, I went to grad school at Brown. I know you went undergrad there. So one Brown grad to another. That was the entry point. And she gave me a quick summary of who she was and, you know, what she wanted to do and, um, and asked me if I was interested. And I just said yes. You've described it as the story of an undocumented woman and her citizen daughter driving across the country together, trying to repair their relationship. And I would sort of describe it as the love child of Fun Home and Hamilton. 
That's nice, parents. <laughs> I've, I saw both of those shows in the room that we did our show in and think of them both actually as spiritual parents of our show as well. Oh, good. Tell us what Lin-Manuel Miranda said at, to you after seeing your show. <laughs> well, before I tell you, here's the context, which is that, that, of course, he and Kiara are very good friends and they're neighbors. And um, Kiara and I have now been writing this show for seven years. Um, so pre-Hamilton and post-Hamilton. And uh, so I've run into Lynn like at the apartment, you know, many times. Hey, t- Lynn. Yeah, exactly. It never <laughs> Dude. It's, it's, yeah, it's a little weird. He's he's gracious and very nice. Um, yeah, so there's already, we already like have like a rapport, like when someone is, you know, like I remember one time I was uh, Skyping with Kiara. We were getting ready to work. We wrote most of the musical on Skype because, again, I live in Massachusetts. And I remember being in my, like my PJs like on Skype, like drinking a cup of coffee uh, without a bra on or whatever. And then like all of a sudden she goes, Lynn's here. It like turns the, the Skype camera and it's like I'm waving hi to Lynn. Like, and I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, don't look. But yeah. So uh, but he did come see our show. And afterwards um, he was like crying. And I just like went up to him and he was like, fuck you. <laughs> he was that moved. Yeah, and and um, I just took that as a like. Uh, I, he is my peer. I mean, he's 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 very good at what he does, and he's very famous. But like, he's also like my peer. We both wrote musicals with the same person. I run into him in the hallway. I admire him. He's a hero, but he's also my peer. So that fuck you was like, hey peer, mm. like you, like you got me. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And and that that's what I love most about about that moment was like. I don't need him to tell me what parts of the musical he really liked. I don't need him to to be like, good job. I felt him saying fuck you was more like two fishermen, like, sitting next to each other on the bank and, like, I pulled up a trout. Right. <laughs> and he's like, man, fuck you. I've been right. trying. Blah, blah, blah. And um, I had the opportunity to meet um, Sting <laughs> in this process in, like, another whack, like, story, for example. But I had a very similar conversation with him. Again, where we just were like, it is hard to write songs. And that was the basis of the conversation. It wasn't like, oh, my God, you're famous. It's hard to write songs. And it's really nice to find community with people. The two women leads are in many ways opposite. Daphne Rubin Vega is a musical theater legend, having starred in the original Broadway production of Rent, which I saw. Me and too. <laughs> Giselle Jimenez is making her off-Broadway debut. She is... Amazing. Yeah, you what know, a face. What? Yeah, I know. She's got the biggest eyes I've ever seen. Just on the a most face. expressive <laughs> face I've yeah. ever seen. She's extraordinary. Um, yeah, it was really funny what Lynn said. Uh, uh, we've all seen Dear Evan Hansen, and we know that Ben Platt cried an extraordinary amount and still sang. And um, Lynn observed, and I hadn't thought about this way, but that Giselle is doing even more sing crying, Ben Platt like. Per acreage, real estate, there's more crying and singing in our show. And she's uh, magnificent at it. And and when I was um, a high school senior, we took our senior class trip to New York in 1996, the spring of 1996, and we saw Rent. And so I saw Daphne, who is not that much older than me, uh, in that show. And um, for me, Giselle, extraordinary, amazing. I'm so pleased to, to give an artist like that the opportunity to shine. But we made this for Daphne. We built this for her because we felt like there was no other artist that could play that role, that should play that role, that should create that role. And to be honest, I don't think Daphne has had the opportunities that other people who look different or sound different would have had given 
and it's a crime given her extraordinary level of talent. Like she opens her mouth and the sound that she makes is uh, unbelievable. Erin, would you be able to sing us something from Miss You Like Hell? Yes. Um, I always feel like I have to introduce this by saying this is Daphne Rubin Vega's song. It is hers. It is for her. And I cannot do it the justice that she does, but I will try. This is a song that um, the mom in our show, Beatriz, sings to her daughter at a, at a crucial moment in the, in the musical to truly like impart some wisdom to her daughter. Say, this is what I've learned. This is how I have organized my life. And I think it could help you. I am a lioness. I am a warrior. You are a lioness. You are a warrior. When fate is a wicked son of a bitch, pulls a trick out her ass and gives you the switch. When you're begging for mercy, praying for grace, baby, that's when you fight. That's the time and place. We are animals. We have instincts. We know right from wrong, and when shit stinks, living is a dirty business. To win this, do not wash your skin of this. You win this, you draw strength in this, and if you need help, you ask for it. Call down the ancestors. Come over, witchy witches. Bring on the feminine divine. Yo, here we are, bitches. Las puertas abiertas. She is ready now. I can see it on her face. Virgen Guadalupe, protect my girl. Dale gracia, give her grace. You have a history, here is your legacy, what is your family for? Thick as a lion's fur, the skin that is mine, the blood that is real, you should know in your heart the way it feels, put it over your shoulders, feel the roars, they are over your shoulders, the ancestors, do you feel them, feel It's a dirty business to win this. Do not wash your skin of this. You win this. You draw strength in this. You are a lioness. It really is a a, a very special, really beautiful, really important show. Thank you. Congratulations on making this. I'd like to read back to you something that you said when asked if you had to compromise your ideals with the realities of the industry. And this is what you said. In my early 20s, when I had a lot of opportunities, a lot of money, and a lot of choices to make, I had to make the kind of choices that you're talking about where you have to decide if it feels like a compromise. And if it does feel like a compromise, are you going to go through with it? And how do you make a decision? 
In my early 20s, I struggled more with those things or felt like there was more of a morality or that a choice felt right or a choice felt wrong or like a compromise was difficult or not. I feel infinitely less bothered by any of those questions as an older person who's had a bunch of success and then it went away. Life gets level, which is I make my choices based on do I like the person that I'm working with? Does this bring me an opportunity that feels creatively challenging? And that's what I make my choices from because I've lived with and without money and I have lived with and without recognition of what I'm doing and I'm fine. How did you get to this place? So much therapy. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like, yeah. you know, um, I stopped drinking in 2008, and I feel like for me, uh, making a choice to uh, not drink or use drugs helped my life get level. Um, making a commitment to um, examining my childhood uh, with professional help um, helps life get level. I think like having a monthly budget that stays the same and is minimal. Like for me. That helps life get level. And again, it gives me an enormous amount of freedom and takes away like a lot of anxieties for me. Um, that's that's what I mean by life gets level. And it, it's um, I would say that I figured all of that out in the last 10 years, um, slowly but surely with a lot of help. You know, it, it's it's nice. The recognition the show is getting it's it is by far the um, most visible thing I've ever done um, to have a new musical at the public you know, that is written about and seen by all these different folks and, and has now been gratefully nominated for a lot of awards, which is really cool. Um, that's all just, like, much more visibility than I've ever had before, and it will go away. I've just learned that. It, it just will, and that's totally cool. That's what I mean by life gets level. I just, like, have a, a different feeling of, like, I'm going to be fine than I had, you know, years ago when I was younger. My last question for you will help me solve a big mystery. Um, you once collaborated on a song with Rachel Maddow over text message. Uh-huh. So this tell is awesome. <laughs> how this did that happen? Yeah, again, like I'm how so— How do you text message a song with Rachel Maddow? Uh, it's such a lovely story. So uh, Maddow and I— um, Wait, you call her Maddow? I do call her Oh, Maddow. God, I'm so jealous. <laughs> um <laughs> So I've been living in Northampton, Massachusetts for a long time, and we have an amazing radio station there that is a, a commercial AAA station. And um, Rachel was our morning DJ for years. She just did the morning show there. And, um, they, you know, that was a time where I was playing more often and more shows and um, was, you know, quite popular in Northampton, <laughs> the extent of my fame. Um, but she was a fan and I was a fan of hers and we would, you know, see each other and just be sort of mutual like fan people of each other. And um, and when she got her Air America radio gig, um, she invited me to be on her show. And I remember it was right after Hurricane Katrina and, and she invited me on to like play some songs and talk about I had made a record called We Will Become Like Birds. I had made it in New Orleans um, right before the hurricane. And um, so we were talking about New Orleans. And um, and it's funny because I remember being on her show and hearing her talk so eloquently about politics and with such command of the issues and such, you know, obviously the thing that she's now very famous for. But anyway, so we just built a friendship from that. She would have me on her show every once in a while. And um, we just stayed in touch. And like every once in a while, when, when we'd both be back home in um, Northampton, we'd, you know, see each other, or go have a, a meal or something. And um, oh my God, this is such a detour, but this is relevant, I promise you. Um, I ran into Ira Glass in a diner in Alaska. 
Um, I don't know if you know. There's a musician. <laughs> wow. There's a mus- musician named Tao Win. Her band is called Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. Yes. She's a yes. Wonderful, she's fantastic. Amazing. So she and I were touring in Alaska together, and we were in Anchorage having breakfast. And she um, spotted Ira Glass in the diner in Anchorage, and they had just met. And so we all ended up having breakfast together. Like talk about what like, are the odds? What are the odds? And talk about one of the great days of my life. Do you know what I mean? Like breakfast with Tao and Ira and his wife at the time, who's just a fantastic woman, and um, uh, just a great conversation and really fun and funny. And um, and that's how I met Ira Glass. And we ended up going to his show that night. And ended up staying in touch with him. Um, but uh, late, um, I believe it was like. 2006, 2007, I might have the year wrong, but the year that the um, BP oil spill happened in the Gulf, um, you know, lots of people were trying to figure out how they how they wanted to help with that situation. And um, Ira put together a benefit at Town Hall here in New York, and he asked um, another songwriter friend of ours, Lucy Rain- Wainwright Roach, to write a song with him just for fun, for the thing, and like, you know, Ira Glass and the songwriter write a song, how fun and funny, and and um, Ira had invited Matto to speak that night, and he was like, why don't you see if, like, do you want to play music, and do you want to see if, like, maybe Matto will do that? And I was like, okay. So I called her and left a message and said, like, do you want to write a song together? And I got a text back that was like, I'm in Iraq right now, and she was like, I'd love to, but I don't know how this is going to happen. And I was just like, tell me about where you are. So she texted me, like, some thoughts about what was happening for her in Baghdad. And she just sent me, like, a bunch of, like, observations. And I just took those observations and turned them into a song. I think I remember also asking her, what kind of songs do you like? What are you listening to right now? Just something to give me, like, a scaffolding to to put it on. And that's how we made the song. Erin, thank you so much for (laughs) creating so many new worlds for us with your music. Thank you for your extraordinary musical. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you. This is um, a real privilege to have the attention that you've given to my um, career and my music. And you've archived me in this way that feels really special and I feel really honored. So thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Erin McKeown, check out her website, Erin McKeown, that's M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 